2: Hello. Good evening, everybody. How are you doing? How are you doing, Mr. Real?
0: I'm, I'm doing really good. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad so to hear it. You're back from the Grand Canyon, safe and sound. It, it's a Grand Canyon, too. I mean, it's, there's a wide divide down there. And they say, well, I was listening to a video. So there's lots of videos out there that tell you how the Grand Canyon is made by the Colorado River. And even with millions of years to do it, you look at it and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. But I found a video on YouTube that explained it. It was actually done by the Great Global Flood in about 30 minutes. So the Colorado River story, we can just set aside. That doesn't make any rational sense. Global Flood is how we have the Grand Canyon.
2: I remember that subject came up when I was a kid and my dad told me how the Grand Canyon was formed. According to him, a Scotsman lost a dime.
0: Oh, goodness. I can't believe you're laughing at that. Well, I assume your dad thought that Scotsmen would do anything to find their dime. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I think that's the idea. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, how's things going with you? How was the sunstone? It was fantastic. It was
2: hot and it was hard to breathe because there's not as much oxygen in the air as I'm used to at sea level. I remember I got up on Saturday to introduce my subject. And um, I, welcomed, I welcomed everybody out to Sunstroke.
0: <laughs> uh, you should have been at 8,000 feet in the air at the Grand Canyon. I, uh, I'd walk 10 steps from my cabin to the lodge, and I needed to sit down and take about a half hour off to catch my breath.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was, it was rough, but I had a great time regardless, even though I had to stop every three steps to catch my breath.
0: How was uh, how was your uh, how was your session? How was the thing on uh, DNC one thirty two?
2: It seemed well received. Thank you for asking, Bill. And as you know, I had just gotten done a week ago tonight, before our show, in the Mormon Story Studio with John DeLynn talking for two hours about that subject. And I think that will be going up maybe sometime this week. So hopefully, that will reach a broader audience.
0: Sweet, I'm sure it's going to reach a few thousand more, perhaps. You know.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think so. By the way, Maven is with us. Maven, how are you doing? Maven? I
3: just, yeah.
2: Let's hear. Let's. I, yeah. Are you there, Maven? <laughs>
3: yeah. Yes, Maven
2: is with us. Yeah, Say something to the audience, to- Maven.
3: I just never know if I come through okay, so I'll have to see if the chat says my audio is working or not.
0: I can oh, hear you everybody. fine. Hey, you sound great.
3: Okay, great. That's great. I'm excited for the show tonight.
2: Ought to be in India now that August is here.
3: (laughs) It's just all been kind of the same for me. I guess it's raining a little bit more now, but yeah, that's it really.
2: You almost got rained completely away last week, didn't you?
3: Yeah, last week it was pretty bad. I had a lot of issues with the internet, and that's why I couldn't even be in Streamyard just because the connection was so bad. It, would, it took up too much bandwidth, but I was able to be at least on YouTube, so I was able to be in the chat. So, yeah, that's good. As as, as was said at the end of the episode, I guess you thought I wasn't here the whole time. I don't know. <laughs>
2: You know, I go to Utah for one week and I get back and I find out that the Midnight Mormons have changed their name. <laughs> what did they yeah. What did they change it to, RFM? <laughs> well, to everyone's surprise, not least of all mine, they changed it to, are you ready? Ward Radio.
0: They're neither a ward nor a radio.
2: <laughs> I know, it was quite a surprise. It used to be Midnight Mormons with a strike through the Mormons, but they still kept the name. Yeah. I guess as long as they could without being faced with some kind of church discipline for not following the dictates of President Nelson, yeah. but yeah, Ward Radio. So I've decided that yeah. I'm going to take that as a compliment.
3: Yes, I think you should. I was I was thinking that they they just probably should have or could have been able to hold out a little bit longer. I I think Nelson's set to go anytime, and then Mormon's going to be it, it, that's this is his pet thing. It's not going to really matter as much, so. I guess yeah. maybe that's what they were waiting out for initially, and it's he's still around. So maybe, I, I guess maybe they hit their limit, and they're like, okay, we have to now. It's, it's been too Bill, long. I not know. Oh,
2: Bill and I talked about this, and we thought that if they had consulted us, we might have given them the idea of keeping the same basic name, but changing it just enough to make it acceptable. Instead of Midnight Mormons, they could have changed it to Midnight Mormonism.
0: Or Mormons After Midnight.
2: Well, they still has some Mormon's part. That's the that's the problem they were trying that's to get around.
3: Problem.
0: Mormonism after midnight, maybe. Yeah, okay. I
2: like that. Mormonism after midnight. That is a. Almost by anything the
3: way, would have been better than Ward Radio. I think.
2: I think I know everybody's wondering people. what kind of Ward I put. Was it Burt Ward Radio? <laughs>
0: Sidekick Robin.
2: <laughs> right. You know Burt Ward. You know. You know Burt Ward, right? Um, Maven Burt Ward. He was the actor who played Robin to Adam West's Batman in the 1960s TV show. Yeah, So Burt Ward Radio. And then somebody else suggested Psych Ward Radio, which I (laughs) thought was a little rude. Oh, no. no. I thought that was a little bit rude. I'll tell you what I think, especially given Quaku's problems in the not-too-distant past.
0: I'll tell you what I think happened. So you picked your name, Radio Free Mormon, based on Radio Free Free Europe, which was the idea that during – Military escalation, you're behind enemy lines, giving the truth. Actually, I'm
2: out of enemy lines, but I'm broadcasting behind the enemy lines. Yes, yes.
0: And and I think they thought Radio Free Mormon is so cool that we've got to use the word radio, but they didn't understand why you had picked that name, and they just thought using it would be cool. They didn't understand they had to use the meaning behind it.
2: Right. Well, like Rebecca Bibliotech is pointing out, they could not use psych word radio because that one had already been taken. There's already a psych word radio on Spotify, which she found. By the way, the next thing you know, they'll be wearing psychedelic Dr. Strange t-shirts. Or bulletproof vest. Yeah. That one I haven't <laughs> done yet. They beat me to the punch on that one.
0: All right, my friends. So uh, without further ado, a little nod to the Book of Mormon, as always. Uh, should we jump into it?
2: You know that spelled different,
0: right? Um, doesn't matter to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nor does it even mean the same thing. Yeah. I, I do have to say, I, I think people looking for the Midnight Mormons are going to have a lot of trouble. And then they're going to have a lot of trouble reaching new people who are trying to find things on Mormonism. Because as you pointed out, the word ward is a Mormon term, but yeah. such a obscure one in terms of searching for things on the Internet that they're, I think they've in the long run have made themselves harder to find, which is super sad.
2: Yeah, it is unfortunate. And people doing a Google search for them may accidentally come up with my show.
0: They might. And as you and I both know, that river generally only runs one direction. What direction is that? What I mean by that is that folks who are believing in the church, generally when they encounter problems, end up uh, having to revamp their belief system or leave the church altogether. But people who have left the church and people who aren't members at all generally aren't coming in.
2: Okay, so you're talking about it being an exit and not an entrance?
0: Correct. And so if they're doing searches for both, if the word radio trying to find a LDS-oriented podcast, it's more likely that Midnight Mormon listeners become Radio Free Mormon listeners than Radio Free Mormon listeners become Ward radio listeners.
2: Well, any any former uh, Midnight Mormons, uh, listeners, before they come over to become listeners of mine, have to go through a penance process
0: in rebaptism, at least. Hey, and I, <laughs> yeah, I, I hold them down easy. for
2: like thirty seconds to make sure it, it gets totally clean. I was but say, speaking wash of wash off easy, speaking of obscure, speaking of obscure names, yes, please. Uh, you have something delightful for the audience tonight involving obscure Mormon artifacts. Is that right, Bill?
0: Look at that! Thank you for the good segue
2: um so here we are maven was asking right before we started i'm sorry i keep letting you go what is that above my head in this thumbnail in the gold frame
0: that is an actual brigham young cane he had lots of them by the way that's a cane that's a cane
2: that guy was heavy wasn't
0: he uh they they call it uh they called it a bent cane which you can see why that would be the case but brigham young had lots of canes in fact my a uh, friend and former boss, Chris Bloxham, has a Brigham Young cl- cane at his house. Oh, wow. And uh, so that is a Brigham Young cane above your head. And we'll get into why I used th- an image of that later. Uh, but why don't we jump into it? I'll uh, I'll put the first slide up and just say uh, briefly that in Mormonism, there are tons of artifacts, things that we've talked to death. Other Mormon scholars have talked to death. Kinderhook plates, the magic parchments, even recently on Mormonism Live book of abraham papyri first edition seer stone and the charles anton manuscript are the things up on the screen but i wanted to talk tonight about things that most folks either maybe vaguely have heard of or more likely haven't heard of at all and you found a fun one for us to start with and so i'll turn a few minutes over to you and let you talk about the arrow head that was found with zelf skeleton Oh, right, right, right.
2: Thank you. Now, first off, I have to give credit to to this, or for this, to Colby Reddish, who drew my attention to it. He found out what we were going to be talking about tonight, and he sent me a text saying, are you going to be talking about the Zelf arrowhead? And whereas I know the story about Zelf and the discovery of the arrow stuck in his ribs, um, I had no idea that it had been taken or preserved in any way, but apparently... The answer to that is maybe yes.
0: Maybe yes.
2: (laughs) So what you've got up here, you've got all this wonderful um, text that you've prepared. Would you like me to go through that?
0: Yeah, these were the two paragraphs you pointed me towards in the beginning of the week when you sent me a link to read up on this, and I wanted to put these on here for either us to read or for at least viewers later on to be able to see.
2: Let's go ahead and do that, shall we? So... The stone arrowhead found in Zelf's ribs, I'm trusting everybody here is somewhat familiar with the story, it happened in Zion's camp in 1834, they're into Illinois as of June 3rd, 1834, when they come upon this rather large mound, and of course the countryside is full of mounds of different sorts, there's burial mounds, there are mounds of fortifications, etc., 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 And this particular mound, they dug down around a foot or two. They find the skeleton, which was described by some people. By the way, lots of different people, obviously, on the trip. There's around 200 men. And a handful of them wrote accounts about what happened. And there's a lot of contradictions between them. One of them says that it was a very tall skeleton. And that's what I remembered. There was a very tall skeleton, but then I look at... I think it's Wilfred Woodruff's account, and he describes it as short and squat. So that's quite a difference. Don't know what to make of it. But they all agree that there's, a, there's an arrow stuck in this guy's ribs. And by the way, it's in the back. So Zell, for whoever this person was, got shot in the back with an arrow. And the arrowhead was left. And what I found out was that apparently... They not only took some of the bones with them and then buried them once they got to Missouri. Because they were already buried.
0: They were already buried where they were, but they needed to take them with them to rebury them.
2: Well, yeah. So I, I don't know what that's about either. But this was seen as something very confirming of the Book of Mormon because they find a skeleton with the arrow stuck in the ribs. And Joseph Smith, through inspiration and revelation, on the spot says, hey, this guy was a white Lamanite. His name is Zelf. And some of the accounts say that he fought in the last battles between the Lamanites and the Nephites, which would have put it around, I don't know, the 4th century CE is when that happened, according to the Book of Mormon anyway. And another one of them talks about how he was so famous that he was known from the Atlantic to the Rocky Mountains. And it talks about that the chieftain was um, uh, Onandagus. I think that that was the name, which sounds a lot like the Indian tribe from New York. Anyway, let's see what we got here. The Stone Arrowhead huh. found itself. <laughs> Tonight's show is not all about this. I'm sorry. You see, you gave me one yeah, thing to it. talk about, and I'm running away with it, and I apologize. I'll get to the point here. Ahem, ahem.
0: The so Stone you on, Arrowhead. On. You're, saying, you're saying that a Book of Mormon character sounded a lot like a Native American tribe that actually existed in the New York area.
2: I'm almost saying that because actually Onandagus does not show up in the Book of Mormon.
0: Right. It's just a Zelf story.
2: Right. But the chief, uh, I think it was Onandagus, And that was, it does sound an awful lot like, yes. Coincidence though, I'm sure. Well, it, it could be, or it could, there could be a connection. So the stone arrowhead, I'm going to start with the first line again. See if I can get through the first sentence. The stone arrowhead found in Zelf's ribs were supposedly taken as a keepsake. Okay. So they took it with them. Which makes sense, but I had never heard this before. But there are conflicting accounts as to who retained possession. There's actually even conflicting (laughs) accounts about who took possession of it originally. One has it with, uh, I think, Brigham Young. And another account has it with, I think, a guy last name Briggs or something like that. And then you can trace it, but not very well. Because it shows up in different writings throughout the 1800s and into the early 1900s as well. But let's see here. Oh, it's Riggs. (laughs) It's right there. You wrote it. (laughs) Variously attribute initial possession of it to Elder Burr Riggs or Brigham Young. Those are the two fellows. An 1850 account notes that Emma Woodruff, the wife, the wife, a wife of Wilford Woodruff, was then currently in possession of it. In 1893, so we're much later now, in 1893, James E. Talmadge, who you may have heard of, recorded that Wilford Woodruff showed him the arrowhead and claimed it had come into his possession through one of Brigham Young's daughters, Zina Young Card. Finally, finally, this is the last reference we have to it. Finally, in a 1909 biography of Wilford Woodruff compiled from his journals, Matthias Cowley, who was an apostle at the time serving under Joseph F. Smith, who was president, Matthias Cowley claimed, quote, the arrowhead referred to is now in the possession of President Joseph F. Smith in Salt Lake City, Utah, period. End of quote. So there is a projectile point, or projectile point, located in the LDS Church archives that is believed by some to be the very point. That was found in the ribs of the skeleton. However, however, it appears to be the wrong arrowhead. Because what ends up happening is that it's 1990. We've got the, um, I think it's the Central or the Center for American Archaeology, the CAA, which gets permission to actually do an excavation or a dig here on this mound, which is called, in archaeological terms, it's not called Zelf's Mound. It's called Naples Mound 8, Number eight, right? Or alternatively, it's also called Naples-Harris Mound 8. And I presume that has to do with the people who discovered it after the Mormons did. Or Anyway, that's what it's called. And they were able to excavate it and uh, look into what was found there and uh, publish it in an actual peer-reviewed archaeological journal. As part of that, the individual who was the head of the excavation, who uh, was a, I'm pretty sure he's a Mormon archaeologist who got the chance of a lifetime to be at the head of the excavation of Zelf's Mound, thought it would be a good idea if they could get a hold of the arrowhead that had been found there stuck in the ribs of Zelf for comparison purposes. He is able to contact an individual named Dr. Oh, shoot. Is it James Bradley? Is it on here? You may already have it on here. Anyway, Dr. Bradley, who says he has it, he he was able to find it in the church archives, but he doesn't produce the actual arrowhead and give it to him. He takes a, a, that's me doing a picture, a snapshot of the arrowhead and gives it to him. And I believe that this is probably, this looks to be a picture of the same arrowhead that was in church archives. First thing to note, it was made out of obsidian. And without going into too much detail, after... The um Dr. Farnsworth, who's writing the article, he does the dig in 1990. He writes a paper on it in 2010. And his conclusion is that this arrowhead is not from this mound. Now, are you talking, Bill?
0: Am I <clears throat> so going- this type of, yeah, this type of arrowhead doesn't belong with the Hopewell culture, the Native American tribe of the Hopewells, which is who was uh, the prevailing tribe in this area at this time. And so even though there's an arrowhead in the church and many people in the church thought it was the one that belonged to Zelf, it seems as though it's a random arrowhead that somehow got into the church being posed as the arrowhead from Zelf, but isn't from the right time. It's not from the right native American cultures And uh, all the experts say this is not an arrowhead found in that Naples Russell Mound 8.
2: Exactly. So maybe somewhere along the line, uh, it got substituted intentionally or unintentionally for the arrowhead that was apparently collected from the site in 1834. But the bottom line is that the arrowhead that the church had in its archives, I don't know what they've done with it since. Presumably, they still have it. Was pretty much concluded on a scientific basis to not have been original to that mound.
0: Yeah, and oh, you did. It was James find Bradley. Oh, it was ahead. James Bradley. And you did find some interesting stuff. I mean, when they when they did the excavation on the mound, there actually is a couple of bullseyes, right, for well, a, those who uh, look into uh, kind of the location of the Book of Mormon. I know.
2: Uh, I was feeling the old apologetic urges when I saw this. Because here's the deal, okay? I think we all know what the Book of Mormon time frame is. It's from 600 BCE to around 421 CE, or as we used to say, AD. And if you go to nothing that's Mormon, I don't think, but just the Wikipedia article, because I was doing a bunch of research on this, right? And I found that there's a Wikipedia article on Naples Mound 8. And you can find that in, just by searching for it. It's a relatively short Article and it talks about scientific investigation of the mound. And it says, Mound number eight, located just 150 yards to the north of the Elizabeth Mound Group. A scientific excavation of this mound, which is abbreviated as capital R, capital N8, RN8, was carried out in 1990 by the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign in cooperation with the Center for American Archaeology. That's the CAA. The dig was funded by the Illinois Department of Transportation and supervised by archaeologist Ken Farnsworth. The artifacts found Now pay attention now, Bill. The artifacts found during the excavation confirmed the mound to be a Hopewell burial mound, dating from, drumroll please, 100 BC to 500 AD. It's the right so, time. Right during the flourishing and the final battles of the Nephites and the Lamanites, at least as presented in the Book of Mormon. Now, the other thing that was really interesting about this is because I'd always thought that this, this detail that Joseph Smith gives about Zelf being so famous that he's known from the Rocky Mountains to the Atlantic, I thought that's a really famous guy, especially in those days when they don't have movies or radio or even the internet. But here's the next line in this Wikipedia article. The artifacts of the RN-8 mound were found to be from many parts of the eastern two-thirds of the United States, or in other words, east of the Rocky Mountains, illustrating the the wide trade network of the Hopewell culture. So they got this mound in Illinois, and they go digging into it, and they have this excavation, and they find there's crap in there from all over the United States, and specifically from the Rocky Mountains to the Atlantic seaboard. So suddenly this idea that Joseph Smith is saying that Zelf was known from the Rocky Mountains to the Atlantic uh, coast doesn't sound so
0: odd anymore. No. I I, get, I do get a kick, though, that a group of Mormons tampered with a Native American burial site. and And also to the thing you just said, which is, if this were connected to the Book of Mormon, this would be evidence in favor of the Heartland folks, not the Mesoamerican folks.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a difficult thing for Mesoamerican folks, and I know we're going to get to all these other artifacts that you've you found, and um, I don't want to belabor this point, but I, I'll tell you that I found the um, the article that was published on this, it was rather lengthy, not about the arrowhead itself, but about the story of Zelf and all the different accounts of it that was published in BYU studies in 1989. And I remembered when I'm back from uh, Washington, where I'd taken the bar in July of that year. And now, you know, I'm I'm waiting for months and clerking and doing all this stuff while waiting for the bar results to come in and occupying myself by reading a number of things, including about, um, oh, what was it? It was about Mark Hoffman. And one of the books about him, which wasn't especially faith promoting, but also reading this article about self-skeleton and finding myself feeling somewhat disquieted about this entire episode. And I'm not sure exactly what it was, maybe because it just seems so fortunate that, you know, everything that Joseph Smith tripped over ended up being incredibly significant. And tied either to Adam or the Book of Mormon or something
0: religious. Yeah, this wasn't just some common Lamanite or Nephite. This was somebody connected to a great battle and the chief was known across the whole, uh, pretty much the whole United States.
2: Right. So the bottom line of this, as far as artifacts go, yes, they have an arrowhead, but it does not appear to be the arrowhead.
0: Yeah. And just to note, folks, it is interesting, the the Zelf Mound in the top right corner there of the of the image from the slide, uh, the archaeologists were able, through uh, historic journals, historic landmarks, and mound surveys, to find the actual Zelf Mound. And uh, so we do have an arrowhead in the church history department, but it's almost certainly not the right one.
2: Yeah, I didn't see it in the church history museum when I took the tour there last Thursday.
0: No. No. And you can bet your ass that if it matched up, they would be showing this thing uh, probably from the Rocky Mountains to the eastern coast as well. They might (laughs) indeed. It might have
2: had primacy of place there.
0: Yeah. But it's the wrong object at the wrong time in the wrong place. And like Mormonism and so many other places, it just doesn't add up. Yeah. All right. So from there, a couple cool things. Joseph Smith's Masonic Apron. Uh, Around the years of 1842 to 1844, Abraham Jonas, serving as the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Illinois, officially established a Masonic Lodge in Nauvoo, Illinois on the 15th of March, 1842. And there were lots of folks in the Latter-day Saint movement who were already Masons, but, but at this inauguration day of the Masonic Lodge in Nauvoo up to that moment, Joseph Smith had not become a Mason yet, but he was initiated that day on the 15th of March. And then the following day was advanced to the degree of master Mason. And as part of their symbolic attire, Mason's commonly wore aprons to safeguard their clothing. I don't know what that's about, um, but notice that the Mormon temple endowment also used uh, or uses um, uh, an apron as well. uh, Almost certainly believed to be a a borrowing direct borrowing in uh, Thomas Wayman's words of uh masonry in order to create the endowment as uh it says this, this apron here that you see on the screen was worn by joseph smith was crafted from silk and backed uh with muslin uh, any thoughts on this before i move to the next one just that
2: joseph smith was very busy during this time period in fact only two days later on march 17th 1842 he will organize the relief society
0: yeah there are a lot of things going on in 1842 that's for sure it's amazing he had any
2: time at all to spend with his wives.
0: Yeah. We've got Joseph Smith's red silk handkerchief. And there comes a point where somebody asked for Joseph to come bless uh, his twins. I think the twins are five months old. It's in the article or in the write-up here. Uh, Joseph says he can't go. Uh, but he says, uh, I think he sends Wilford Woodruff. Yep, Wilford Woodruff with it and says, you take this and wipe the the children's faces with it. In other words, take my snot rag, wipe their faces with it and get my snot rag, snot all over their faces. And, uh, and this will heal the children. And so Wilfred Woodruff takes the handkerchief and does exactly that. He says, I went with the man and did as the prophet commanded me and the children were healed. So that's some, that's some good snot there. I'm telling you.
2: Oh my God. It's an elixir. (laughs) You are so, so lost. (laughs) But I will tell you, this is. is the day of great healing, Right. A Day yeah, of God's power. power and uh, Wilfred Woodruff went up and down the banks of the Mississippi and using this handkerchief from Joseph Smith to heal all in sundry, not just those two kids, which of course is a riff or a mirror of the same story that's told about Paul in the New Testament and using a handkerchief in order to heal, if memory yeah. serves.
0: Yeah. So this is, I believe, on display at the Church History Department. Uh, then I, ca- I saw this and I didn't know this either, but the You know, it is novel- surprising
2: that they just put it behind glass and don't go down to the children's the primary children's hospital with it
0: Oh, the rag, yeah That they should, you would think that if we really did have prophets, seers and revelators, men holding the holy priesthood upon which uh, s- sacred anointing, uh, olive oil could be placed on the heads of children especially those that are terminally ill and children could be raised up in, in faith and be healed, even if it was only one out of 100 or one out of 200, you would think these leaders would go to the primary children's hospital and do the work of the priesthood. And like you say, maybe take things like uh, the red handkerchief with them to improve the data. But for some reason, prophets, seers, and revelators are hardly ever seen at children's primary hospital in Salt Lake City.
2: No. And you know, you've heard this story before. I've heard it before in church. Everybody's heard in church because it's told rather regularly. It's an amazing miracle, but it just occurs to me only now that this miracle is itself in some sense, subversive to the entire idea about needing to have the priesthood and anointing and sealing the anointing and then blessing somebody. And you know, the whole ritual, right? And that's the only way that God's going to heal somebody is through those appointed channels. When actually at the same time, you've got just a rag being used.
0: You know, we had lessons every year and sometimes multiple times a year where we were taught the ins and outs of putting doing the priesthood blessings. And I remember so many times hearing people teach me not to apply the oil to your finger and then put it on the crown of their head, but to pour the oil directly from the container to a drop onto their head. And it didn't matter how many times we got those lessons, there was always those two guys in the ward who continued to put the oil on their finger and put it on the crown of the head that way.
2: Right. And those people had no success in healing at all.
0: Yeah. The rest of us also didn't have any. success. No,
2: no, if you do it right, it's going to work 100% (laughs) every time. It's just when you put it on your finger first and then go to the crown. Nope, that's not going to work.
0: Reminds me of an episode you did the general conference death March.
2: Oh my gosh. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for remembering
0: that. That's been a while. Yeah, a little bit. It's a good episode, folks. You ought to check it out at RadioFreeMormon.org. Um, so we've got the Joseph Smith Nauvoo Legion attire. I don't want to necessarily spend a lot of time on this one, but it is interesting that the attire that Joseph wore when he was uh, the lieutenant general in the Nauvoo Legion, which, again, Joseph served as the mayor. He was the editor of all the newspapers. He was the lieutenant general in the Nauvoo Legion. and he By the way, the Bill, girls. do you know what
2: the significance of lieutenant general is?
0: Uh I would assume he's right underneath the general.
2: It is the highest military office that a civilian could hold.
0: Oh, look at that.
2: That's my recollection. So (laughs) that's as high as he could go being a civilian.
0: Yeah, It's not like he's
2: being humble saying I'm not a four-star general. I'm just a Lieutenant General. No, this was as high as he could possibly be and still be a civilian.
0: Yeah. Master Mason, Lieutenant General, Nauvoo mayor. Yeah. And he got all the pretty girls. Okay. So, He's got it
2: um, all. I like the cloak. Can you go back to the cloak just for a second so I can make some kind of ridiculous comparison? I like the cloak. <laughs> it reminds me, it reminds me of one of my favorite favorite Disney shows, The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. I've never seen the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. Well, you've got a real thrill ahead of you, my friend. I've got
0: Disney Plus. I'll check it out tonight after the show. Oh, great. Great. I wish I could join you for that. <laughs> joseph smith's pepper box pistol we all grew Say up that the three narrative. times fast <clears throat>
2: yeah um we all grew it's up good thing the it didn't belong to parley p pratt
0: yeah parley p pratt's pepper box pistol <laughs> i got it too i won't do it three times but i got it oh. the first one <laughs> uh, so this pistol parsons? parley parsons pratt right yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: So this pistol, something special about it, right? Joseph Smith had it with him. It was smuggled in by Silas Wheelock into the Carthage jail. So Joseph Smith could have it for a little protection when the mob stormed.
0: Yeah. You and I grew up in the narrative that, you know, Joseph and Hiram are martyred and killed in cold blood. But, and again, they were outnumbered and there were more uh, functioning weapons on the other side of that door than they had in that room. But there are several accounts of this pistol as well as another pistol being given to the prisoners and so they weren't completely armless uh they were not unarmed um I didn't want to I guess I didn't want to get into uh, the man of arms from the Book of Mormon which you know, Ammon. those were just dis- they were disarmed as well and
2: <laughs> yeah how many how many are how many Lamanite arms did Ammon cut off and carry to the king
0: I don't know it was a whole bag of arms
2: it was an armful it was armful <laughs> A bag of arms. So, or is it an arm load? It's an arm load. I think that's load. it. And I screwed up the punchline again. But that's by okay. the way, just so everybody knows, line. this is not repeat, not the pistol that John Taylor used to shoot Joseph Smith as an inside job.
0: No, no, Carson no. This, this is the one Joseph was holding that only fired twice out of four or five shots. Was it three uh, times? Three times. Okay. There you okay. go. Three times a pistol. There we go. So there's Joseph Smith's pepper box pistol. <laughs> This oh is, my gosh! Yeah,
2: you didn't so give a is, warning before you started this show.
0: This is Hiram Smith's clothes that he was martyred in, and uh, that's the box that is argued that from history that the gold plates were stored in. If you remember the story, Joseph uh, goes to his—is it his brother Hiram or he goes to Willard Chase? He goes to somewhere and he's trying to get a box made, and nobody has the box ready. And so he has to borrow a box from somebody else or something. But this is the box that the plates were supposed to be stored in. And this is Hiram uh, Smith's outfit when he was martyred. And I've, I saw these as a new convert because Eldred G. Smith, while he was removed as church patriarch and was only an emeritus, uh, he traveled around the circuit of, of stake centers putting on firesides showing people these clothes and the box. Now, I didn't see this particular thing, but there are places on the Internet where you can go read where folks who went to these firesides, Eldred G. Smith would let his grandkids get into these clothes and like play in them and like walk around and stuff. And uh, it's sort of a little bit, I don't know, a little bit weird to have your grandkids in bloody clothes that uh, Hiram Smith was shot in, but – There are those stories out there. Um, You know, that reminds me of a strange
2: situation, which I won't elaborate upon, where I went to a church dance in high school wearing a legitimate original Roy Rogers shirt.
0: You and a Roy Rogers shirt. Mm. Did you have your Red Ryder BB gun with you? I did not because it'll shoot your eye out. (laughs) The cool thing about this box is that the church itself admits that the plates wouldn't fit in them. Because do they admit it, has- it or do they just display it? Well, they put a replica of the plates in the box, but you can notice from the image that the lid won't close. <laughs> we
2: well, just got to sit on it, you know. It's like when you've overpacked a suitcase, you just got to sit on it and bend those three rings down a little flatter.
0: Yeah, as is, the church is demonstrating that the gold plates could not have been in that box, at least not with the large D-shaped rings that are proposed to have been binding those plates together.
2: Yeah, I think the problem is with the replica of the gold plates. It's not the box.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the plates. They're too big.
2: Yeah, this is something that uh, Brent Metcalf had pointed out to me uh, a while back. He had mentioned about this uh, this box that was created and then would not have been able to hold the gold plates it was used to hold.
0: Correct. So there's there it is right there. Um, all right, so the next thing is these coffin canes. And... Um, I'll I'll read this here and then we'll show some pictures. Oliver Boardman Huntington's journal says, I had with me a cane made of the rough box hastily nailed together into body, which the prophet Joseph Smith's was placed after he was murdered and brought to Nauvoo from Carthage. Is Oliver
2: Huntington dyslexic or am I? uh,
0: I think it's he because I just copied and pasted this from uh, from where it was on, uh, on the Internet. So it's let's see here was placed after he was murdered and brought to Nauvoo from Carthage in the top of the cane was a lock of his hair, which was taken from his head, which was taken from his head, his I'm head. I'm glad we cleared that yeah, part up. I don't know what's going on there. After he had been buried seven months, my brother, William took it off as he and my brother Dimick were moving the bodies of Joseph and Hiram from where they were first buried in the cellar of the Nauvoo house to the cellar or pit under the little outhouse, that was built exclusively for that purpose. The glass over his face was broken and they saved some of that glass and a piece of that glass covered the hair in the top of the cane. And then a piece of metal with a round hole in the center was over the glass and hair through the hole in the metal aluminum. The hair could be seen at the party on that evening. The cane in its history became known and was viewed inspected admired and handled by each individual and was constantly on the move until 12 o'clock at night. I was invited to give a history of the cane and of the burial and reburial of the bodies of Joseph and Hiram Smith, which I did. The cane came into my possession in this way. It was my brother Demick's cane in the first place. The whole box that Joseph's body was brought to Nauvoo in was sawed up into strips suitable to make walking canes of and divided out among his special friends. After the death of Demick, the cane became Alan's and he told me to take and keep it until he called for it. He died without calling for it at all. And the details of this are all over the place. And so don't trust this narrative. But my general understanding is that there were temporary boxes that Joseph and Hiram were placed into that would allow for them to be viewed for a week or so in Nauvoo. And those boxes would be roughly made. And then there would be like a piece of glass on the top so that as people filed in to see Joseph and Hiram's body, they could look down and, into the glass and see their faces. And when those coffins were done away with, they were cut up into pieces and handed out. I saw somewhere that there were 12 canes made, but again, various reports talk about it being fewer or, or more than that. We really don't know the exact number. Um, I do want to read a few other little things here. I read, a, there's an article in BYU Studies, 1981, uh, called, the ooh, let me put it up here, The Canes of the Martyrdom. And this is written, he was at the time a BYU student. He later became a BYU professor, Stephen Barnett. He he talks about the description of the cane. I thought I would read that, and I'll actually turn it to the next thing so we can see the images. Uh, info on the coffin canes. We'll go here. Um, the Huntington cane is 33 and a half inches long, made from a medium brown oak, a hollowed knob handle containing a lock of Joseph Smith's hair, originally a piece of glass from the viewing screen of the coffin in which Joseph Smith was laid in state covered the hole in the knob, having been affixed to a metal guard placed just inside the top of the cane. But this metal guard had since been broken. Uh, let's see, where is my Uh The glass is intact. However, still covering the hair it was meant to protect at the base of the knobs hollowed in Base of the knobs hollowed inside just below the knob. There is also a band of metal on the shaft as well as a metal tip at the base of the cane. The rough boards, which had been used as temporary coffins, were sawed in pieces and distributed among Joseph and Hiram's friends who had canes made of them, each with a lock of of the prophet's hair set in the top. These canes are considered sacred relics today. Heber C. Kimball says, and this is in a biography of him by Orson F. Whitney says, I have a cane made from the plank of one of those boxes. So has brother Brigham and a great many others. And we prize them highly and esteem them a great blessing. I want to carefully preserve my cane. And when I am done with it here, I shall hand it down to my heir with instructions to him to do the same. And the day will come when there will be multitudes who will be healed and blessed through the instrumentality of those canes and the devil cannot overcome those who have them in consequence of their faith and confidence in the virtues connected with them. So they have magical properties.
2: And it's Wilford Woodruff who's saying that, correct? It is Heber C. Kimball who's saying that. Oh, okay. Heber C. Kimball. Well, it's very interesting because of course they're going to have this and keep it close as a remembrance of joseph smith but it's very interesting that they would also think that it had magical properties if not in the here and now at least in the in the then and there
0: yeah heber c kimball also says in like manner i have sent my cane dr richard used it to lay his old black cane on a person's head and that person has been healed through its instrumentality by the power of god then uh It also says here, there were also some other canes made which have at times been mistaken for those made from the Carthage coffins. By the way, I I don't think this Sidney Rigdon cane is a coffin cane, but it has the same head on it as one of the coffin canes. And so you can see why people might easily make that mistake. But I do want to note the Sidney Rigdon cane. It says, presented by Brigham Young to Sidney Rigdon, 1844.
2: At which point I thought, well, I guess it was before August 8th, 1844.
0: It sounds like Brigham is trying to win Sidney over to his side, or they're not, they're not getting along so awfully as we've all been taught.
2: That's really very interesting. I wish it had a full date on it instead of just the year. But as I'm understanding what you read, it was believed that one of these canes did have healing properties.
0: Yeah, they... Uh, Hebrew C. Kimball referred not only to his cane, but all of the other canes as those that they would collectively heal multitudes going into the future. And you'd
2: mentioned about somebody putting a cane up against, (laughs) laying a cane on someone's head, but
0: healing them. Yep. Um, I should note uh, that there is also, said here in the article, there is also the possibility that some bogus canes have been made which have been mistaken for those connected with the martyrdom. There's a quote here from a William Hamilton writing to an S H B Smith from Carthage. He says soon after the killing of the Smiths father had the bodies brought to our home in rough pine coffins made in which they were placed. Those boards have furnished material for thousands of walking canes. Thousands. yeah. And so the author notes, it is improbable that there was enough wood available from two coffins for thousands of walking canes. Canes, Hence, William Hamilton may have been joking as he referred to such claims. Um, in some anyways. ways, this
2: reminds me a little bit about the trade and the relics of the the cross on which Jesus was crucified, which um, I, was that, that in the Middle Ages? I can't remember exactly when. But I think somebody once said that if all the pieces were from one cross, it would have made... Uh, a very, very large cross indeed.
0: Yeah, yeah, there was way too much wood parsed off as the slivers and and uh, of of Jesus's cross. And then, but once again, we have we once again we have artifacts which appear to be
2: separate, disconnected from the priesthood or anointing used to heal people, just like Joseph Smith's handkerchief.
0: Yeah, and then one other note here: Raymond W. Taylor in an unpublished article entitled "The Legend of the Friends of the Martyrs." suggested that it was an, that an oath of vengeance was connected to these canes. In this theory, the canes were symbolic of the owner's oath of revenge against those who spilled the blood of the prophet of God. However, the basis for such belief appears to be purely circumstantial. So we don't have a credible source, but there's at least one source that says whoever got those canes had made a promise to revenge the prophet and his death. And then one other last thing. Which is referred
2: to in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Cain rose up. There you
0: go. Um, There was one spot. It was either Wilford Woodruff or Hebrew C. Kimball. But one of them said that me and Brigham Young got a coffin cane each. And we were the only two out of the Quorum of the Twelve that got them. Hence, you can know how much Joseph loved the two of us. And what it also made me think, though, is the other side of that argument, which is that if only two of the 12 got the coffin canes and a bunch of other close associates of Joseph Smith got them, then like you pointed out in your apostolic coup d'etat, maybe Brigham Young and the Quorum of the 12 weren't as close to Joseph Smith as Brigham and the rest of the 12 intimated in their effort to rise to the top and usurp everyone else who had equal authority at the time of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith's death.
2: That's an interesting point. It may be that the coup
0: d'etat was not a fait accompli. <laughs> so there's that for the coffin canes. Anything else on coffin canes? I it's just kind of cool, but kind of
2: weird too. Just the one source that you had, we talked about this on the phone earlier today that mentioned 12 coffin cane sounded like it was a perhaps a reference to the story of the 12 rods from each of the tribes of israel in the pentateuch where they're assembled and left overnight uh, around the temple i can't remember exactly or the tabernacle and in the morning it was found that they were all the same except for aaron's rod which had budded thus signifying god's divine approval of aaron to be the high priest which i think was being argued about and that's what led to this whole Gathering of the
0: 12 rods. There you go. So you have this connection to a biblical story. Hmm. All right. Um, It it was Hebrew C. Kimball that was talking about it. Brother Kimball showed me a rod that the Lord through the prophet Joseph had given him. Uh, He says, uh, before he had time to ask them, my mother and my sister, Helen Mar, Helen Mar Kimball, told me the same thing and added to it that President Young received a similar rod from the Lord at the same time. They claimed that these rods were given them because they were the only ones of the original 12 who had not lifted up their heels against the prophet Sarah Kimball at a Relief Society meeting, April 28th, 1842.
2: Okay, if you'll go back there, I've got to ask you a question. Sure. What does it mean when it says President Young received a similar rod from the Lord?
0: Yeah, all I can say, I I also stopped at that point and tried to read all of this again, but it seems as though um, they're giving credit to the Lord, but it was just these coffin canes that were handed out to Joseph Smith's closest associates and friends. And for some reason, they're trying to, I don't know, insert Heavenly Father into the story where that doesn't really seem to be necessary. Okay, and, and before you go, before you go past the slide, oh yeah, let's read these because these rods
2: don't just heal people, and they're not just used possibly to avenge Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith's death, but also they appear to be means of ascertaining the divine will.
0: What is the name of the early predecessor to the Ouija board?
2: Well, that was like two weeks ago, so I can't remember. There was a planchette, the planchette. planchette.
0: Yes, that's what it is. So this, these canes seem to serve as sort of a planchette. Uh, it said, Heber C. Kimball clothes himself in the endowment robes, prays in the true order while holding a divining rod, and it talked about it in terms of these canes, and asks yes or no questions. Movement of the rod means yes, and no movement means no.
2: Now, that says it's from an entry June 6th, 1844, which is before Joseph Smith gets killed. It's actually the day before the Nauvoo Expositor, but we don't need to go there. Oh, but it's June 6th, 1844.
0: This may not be one of the coffin canes. This may be connected to a cane we'll talk about later uh, tied to jo- or Oliver Cowdery's Rod of Aaron. But but regardless, Heber C. Kimball has a rod that he gets dressed up in the full temple garb and then asks questions And if the rod moves, it's a yes. And if the rod doesn't move, it's a no. It points to, as well, the red handkerchief, the coffin canes, this rod. There's a lot of folk magic that continues long past Joseph Smith's treasure digging that is all the way throughout Mormonism.
2: Right. And these people believe very much in Jesus Christ. They no doubt consider themselves Christians. In fact, the only true Christians, and they see nothing wrong or unusual about uh the coupling it with these kinds of practices that we would normally call folk magic.
0: How do you think Bruce R. McConkie would have felt about this?
2: I think it would have made him uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I think it would have made him very uncomfortable. The thing that I think that's interesting about this is that we know that Oliver had the gift of working with the rod. It was referred to in doctrine and covenants, especially in the book of commandments where it actually said it's the rod of Aaron. And then by two years later, when they produced the doctrine and covenants, the same revelation has been amended so that it's not clear that it was actually a physical rod. It's just talking about the gift of Aaron, instead of the rod of Aaron that Oliver has. But it's always been a question is, at least to me, how does this rod work? I get a seer stone that you stick in a dark spot like a hat, and then there's this divine emanation, and you read words in it. I get that as far as uh, translation goes. But I never got the rod. Uh, there was no description of how it was used. but. This entry that you just read about Heber C. Kimball, June 6, 1844, may give me an insight into how Oliver Cowdery's rod worked with the idea that if the you ask it yes or no questions, and if the rod moves, it means yes, and no movement means no.
0: Right, right. Uh, and then there were, there were notes on other cool canes. By the way, I thought this was interesting. Jesse Smith's letter suggests that Joseph Sr. possessed a magical rod. Mm. Um, yes, he was a rod Verm- worker as well. Yep, left the land of Vermont to pursue golden gods and most significantly practice necromancy. Notice here below, James C. Brewster, remember him? The 11-year-old who got disfellowship by the church for claiming to be talking to Moroni. He published right. his claim as part of an 1836 Ohio treasure quest. Presiding Patriarch Joseph Smith Sr., anointed the mineral rods and seeing stones with consecrated oil and prayed over them in the house of the Lord in Kirtland. And so there was notes about some of these canes are believed to be made from the wood of the Kirtland Temple. And there were some scholars suggesting that because the Kirtland Temple stands, and there isn't a piece of the Kirtland temple missing that maybe what was actually meant or not quite understood was that these were the canes that were blessed in the Kirtland temple.
2: I think that's really, really interesting that James Brewster entry from 1836, which is coming from D. Michael Quinn's the Mormon hierarchy origins of power appendix seven. So I think that's fascinating as late as 1836, a pi- it appears that the the treasure fever for digging for treasure has not abated, at least from Joseph Smith Sr.
0: Right, right. So there are lots of canes, and they uh, a lot of them seem to have some sort of supernatural attached to them. The church has a, a chest that uh, was owned by David Whitmer. You can see some sort of rivets on the top that make up a D dot, W dot. So David Whitmer. And then another thing the church uh, has in its possession is a wallet uh, by Martin Harris. I I tried to look into to see how much money was that wallet was found with. It looks like it was with a promissory note of $3,000 uh, that Martin could turn back into Joseph Smith uh, to reclaim that money that was used to print the first 5,000 copies of the Book of Mormon. No money in it, just an IOU. Just an IOU in Martin Harris's leather wallet. <laughs> Uh, I'll let you talk about this one.
2: Well, thank you, because I know very little about it, except this is apparently John Taylor's watch, which for ages, and when I joined the church back in 78, there was a miracle associated with the watch. John Taylor, while he's not busy offing Joseph Smith at Carthage Jail, manages to run to the window. (laughs) That one's never going to grow old. He runs to the window, and somebody shoots at him and he's got his watch in his vest pocket, and bam, That the the watch saves his life, and he gets moved backward by some force that he didn't know what it was at first. Later on, he figures out, oh my gosh, my, my watch got shot, and that must have been what protected me. You know, God's Johnny on the spot to protect John Taylor from getting shot, but when it comes to Hiram and Joseph, I don't know what he's doing, he's looking the other way. But he's there for John Taylor. And then, in more recent years, I think some testing was done, and it was suggested, if not concluded, that there's no way that this took a ball from a, a 1844 firearm to this watch. Otherwise, it would have been demolished. And so, that story has now been retired, to my understanding, in favor of the idea that maybe he ran to the the window and just he hit against the window sill, and it was the force of his body between the sill and the watch that damaged the watch.
0: Yeah. And like so many other faith promoting stories in church history, this one gets retired along with a whole lot of others. Maven. Wait,
3: I'm jumping in. Uh, can everyone hear me? Okay.
2: I can hear you. Is that Joseph Smith's okay. handkerchief behind your head?
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> no, I wanted to say, I would I, I think it wasn't it from the uh, who killed Joseph Smith movie. Didn't isn't, aren't they the ones that tested this claim i i feel like this was in that movie at least or at least brought up that it couldn't have been um it was it was
2: brought up but i don't think they're the ones who tested it i could be wrong about that but i think this has okay. been tested uh some years ago
3: because i do know they did a, a i mean as part of that second movie they did do a lot more like ballistics kind of testing with the the scenario with the in, in carthage jail it, anyway i just wanted to pop up and and shout that out, I guess, if if that's where it came from.
2: Yeah, and I'm not sure that it did. I know there was a watch because there was also an incident with Hiram Smith's watch, which you can actually see in that photograph that you had, the slide bill earlier, where it's hanging out of his vest pocket. So there was an incident with his watch, and his watch stopped a bullet. Unfortunately, the bullet wasn't coming from the front toward him. It was coming from the back. So when it stopped it, it had already gone all the way through Hiram's body Mm. is what I recall.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And then, uh, so another cool thing are these Mormon gold coins. Uh, they made them, I know they made a $5 piece. They made a $10 piece. They made a $20 piece. Um, the $10 piece actually ends up being the most rare, uh, of all of the, the Mormon gold coins. And in the world of collectible gold pieces, the Mormon gold coin of the $10 piece is like the Holy grail. Uh, the auction record that I read in the article said 705,000, but on Atmex, which is a trusted site. When you want to buy and sell gold, we used it all the time in the pawn shop. Uh, they showed the most recent or highest uh, auction for that coin at $840,000. Now this would be three quarters of a half ounce because The U.S. was making gold coins as well, and a uh, $20 piece would be a a full troy ounce or somewhere close to it, 31.1 grams. And the half ounce then would be somewhere in the the realm of like 15 to 16 uh, grams. So a standard $10 piece, for instance, weighed 16.7 grams. The Mormon $10 piece, and you're the one who pointed this out, when the mormons were making the coins go ahead and tell this part
2: oh i think that what you had would pointed out was that it's substandard the weight is like 75% of a $10 gold piece so they're using they're printing off gold pieces but they don't have $10 worth of gold in it they have like 750 of gold in it which means somebody was making
0: money right at the same time the us is making gold coins that have a set weight they have to be the LDS Church decides it will be making gold coins as well, but doesn't put the standard weight into those dollar amounts, instead shorts them somewhere around 25%. And so the, uh, the $10 piece weighed 14.3 grams rather than 16.7, and that would be, over the course of a lot of coins, that would be quite a bit of money, um, especially in today's value. And but interestingly, these-
2: that plays into why they're so rare and so valuable today is because they wouldn't be accepted at face value outside of Utah, and they were typically melted down. So that was the fate of most of these $10 gold pieces that they got melt. Uh, excuse me, melted into bullion.
0: Yeah. And the, the other thing that plays into it is I think only 46 of them were made, 46 to 50. They said they made 25 on one day and then a week later made 25 more. But another article said that there were only 46 of them made. Today we only know of like eight or nine of these uh, in existence, mm. and uh, so whereas these would have in the gold price, these would have a value of somewhere around eight hundred to a thousand dollars. Because of their collectability, the ten dollar piece in the most uh, the highest auction price went for eight hundred and forty thousand dollars.
2: That's just amazing, isn't it? the wonderful yeah. world of numismatics by the way there's another saying that my dad used to tell me when I was a kid that didn't involve racial slurs and it had to go it went like this it said it said uh, um, young rfm he would say to me which weighs more a pound of gold or a pound of feathers yeah and rfm thinking about it carefully said wait a second a pound of gold or a pound of fe- they weigh the same and then my dad would assume the look of superiority that he often assumed over young RFM and said, what did he say, Bill? Uh,
0: well, I don't know exactly what he said. I wasn't there. He actually said,
2: he, he said, no, he, the pound of feathers weighs more than a pound of gold.
0: And yeah, I said, because what talking one, about?
2: Yeah. And he said, there you go, Bill. You play no, no, the role please, of my father. Ahead. No, you please.
0: So. In uh, metal weighting, in weighing metals, precious metals, we go by troy ounces or troy pounds, and it's very different than the standard weight of ounces in pounds.
2: Because there are 16 ounces to a pound in avoirdupois weight, which is standard weight that we're all accustomed to, but in precious metals, including gold, it is 12 ounces to the pound in troy weight.
0: Yeah, so they're very different
2: you're so, your so you can use right. that uh, that little riddle on your children too and make yourself feel smart.
0: These coins are cool though you've got somebody in uh, which is that the patriarchal grip is that the sh- the sure sign there? It's hard to tell
2: just from this one side yeah it could be it really could be they I mean well it's a it's a hand clasp of some sort which is put smack dab on gold yeah and an all-seeing eye perhaps an open eye at least under what is that
0: a chef's hat? Looks something like a chef's hat with the all-seeing eye, huh?
2: It's probably something other than a chef's hat, but it's definitely an eye. And around the circumference is printed, Holiness to the Lord.
0: Yeah, and you'll notice that the $20 coin has the images in the opposite side of the coin that the $10 piece has, perhaps to make it a little more easy to identify. But um, there's that. So there's those. Here's another cool one. Hiram Smith sunglasses. I... These are actually held by the church, I believe, and I think you can see these at the church history department, church history museum, I'm sorry. Um, but there's an image of a person with those sunglasses on, and that's that's a pretty cool-looking guy back in the 1840s. I know, he looks like John Lennon to me for some reason. Look at that.
2: <laughs> but uh, They I, had I sunglasses didn't know, back then.
0: I didn't even know they had sunglasses back
2: then, yeah. And it's really very clever because they have the sunglass on the front and on the sides.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you got to keep those rays out. You know what I mean? Can't be dealing with glaucoma later on in life.
2: I I, I can almost hear Hiram Smith saying, "We're bigger than
0: Jesus." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, here's a cool thing: the Book of Abraham printing plates. So the they lead have plates. These. Yeah, they're not they wood; they're lead. Yeah the the only you know they're they're cool. Um, you can. Look for I, I tried to find men it was a little small I couldn't couldn't find men over there in in the one but uh,
2: are you talking about it's raining men?
0: um i I don't know about reigning men. I just know that men's phallus was pointed out <laughs> Heavenly Father on his throne
2: <laughs> I'm just I'm just picturing what people are thinking if they don't know that you're referring to the Egyptian creator god men M i n
0: yeah in the circle one in the bottom left. Uh, One of the personages is sitting on a chair with a erect phallus and Joseph Smith claimed that was heavenly father upon his throne, obviously excited for some reason. Um, And twice the church like removed it and then put it back. And uh, there's that whole escapade where somebody in the church realized what it was and didn't want to be mocked for it, but then also realized that then they, when they altered the thing that they were giving even more credibility to the critic. And so they put it back in the later edition Mm. But the the cooler thing, I think, is, and we'll go into this at some point, you and I have talked about this before in early episodes of the show, but um, what's the name of the Anubis, right? Yes. And Anubis, tell everybody as an Egyptian character who that is. He's the jackal-headed god of the dead. Yeah. And so in the top left image, on the very far left, that is Anubis, and Anubis is traditionally represented with a snout, a jackal snout. Yeah, because he's a jackal. And on the printing plate, you can see an up-close picture on the right-hand side. You can see that the snout is starting to be formed there, and then due to the impression to the right of that, you can see that the snout almost certainly was carved out. In other words, the original Book of Abraham printing plate, working off of the papyrus facsimile, would have had Anubis represented appropriately with a snout and someone I would assume fairly with Joseph Smith's permission or Joseph Smith himself asked for the snout to be removed and Anubis is then described as a black slave.
2: Right. And this is, of course, at the very right hand of facsimile three, where you have a black figure who is represented, I think it's Oli Blish, uh, I I can never remember his name, sorry. And
0: let me stop you for just a second and say, in the top left-hand image, you'll see it's on the left on the plate, but keep in mind when the print plate is put into ink and put onto a piece of paper, you're right, it would turn out to be the far right character.
2: Yes, and that's one of the amazing things that Ruben Headlock did. I know that people did this back then, but I still am amazed by it which is to take something of such intricacy as facsimiles one, two, and three, and then carve them into a soft lead plate for purposes of printing, but it all has to be, it would be hard enough just to do that for me, regular. But he has to do it backward. Everything has to be reversed in the image so that when it's printed, it comes out looking like the image itself that he's carving. So amazing to me. But yeah, what we have here is an individual who ends up being black, as it is uh, portrayed in the imagery, which first off is a symbol to Egyptologists that this is likely Anubis, because he has black fur. And that's one of the things you can see him by. He's also in a position where he is introducing the individual to the court of Osiris, because he's made it, and you know now it's gonna be good times, hopefully for eternity, he's made it to heaven. And so he's being introduced and he's escorting him into the presence of Osiris, that would be a function of Anubis. But instead of Anubis with a jackal head, what we have is an individual who has an abnormally small head. It looks like a pinhead on this figure. It is not in proportion. And not only is it a very small head, he has a spike sticking out of the top of it for no particular reason. But if indeed there had been a snout, then it would be Anubis, and the spike then becomes immediately recognizable as an ear, a jackal ear, instead of just a spike or a topknot or whatever that's supposed to be sticking out of his head. It makes very little sense as a person, but a lot more sense as a jackal-headed deity.
0: Yeah. And so again, if you look at Anubis, you can almost certainly see the beginning, the first little bit of that snout starting to protrude. And then there would have been in the original carving – there would have been the full snout. And then somebody dictates that that snout has to come off before it's printed. Um, and so you can see there the, the angle of that uh, just in front of the snout of being further out and getting smaller as it goes. Uh, this would be evidence that the original document did have Anubis and that in order to make it be believable as a slave, they made it more human looking and took the snout off.
2: Right. And Additionally, it might give us insight into what's going on with facsimile number one, where here you have the plate, bottom, second from the left. It's right in the middle of your slide. And it's on the right here because it's the plate instead of on the left, but it's the priest of Pharaoh who has a human-shaped head, which would have been a jackal. That would have been a jackal-shaped head. And I think typically people have understood that this piece of the papyrus was missing. It certainly is today, and that Joseph Smith then created a human-shaped head, which is basically the reverse mirror image of the head on the person on the altar.
0: Yeah.
2: It's the same head. But, and by the way, I want to give credit to Paul Osborne, who's the individual Mm -hmm. who who noted this, if in facsimile three, they have a jackal-shaped head, which they are monkeying with to make it a human shaped head. It could be that they did the same thing with facsimile one, that that piece of the papyrus was not missing at the time that there was a jackal shaped head there, but they did the same thing, which was to amend the picture that was on the papyrus to make it fit the narrative that Joseph Smith wanted to
0: tell. Yeah. And this, this plate here with Anubis's snout cut off would show that Joseph was willing to go that far to To accomplish that.
2: Yes. And it's just a fascinating discovery by Paul Osborne.
0: Yeah. And so I think sometime in the next 20, 25 episodes of Mormonism Live, we will do one just on the data around this plate and what we know about uh, that snout being cut off. And then we've got Oliver Cowdery's Rod of Aaron. So as you pointed out earlier, Oliver Cowdery is using a divining rod and the original revelation that makes its way into the DNC talks about um, uh, him using a rod of Aaron, or it says something else, doesn't it? It says, um, do you happen to know what that is offhand?
2: Right there. If you look in the second paragraph, if you want to, re- I can read it in the revelation to Oliver Cowdery in May, 1829, brother B. H. Roberts said that the gift, which the Lord says he has in his hand meant a stick, which was like Aaron's rod and B. H. Roberts is exactly right. Because that's what it said in the original revelation as published in the Doctrine, excuse me, the Book of Commandments in 1833. Yeah. He goes on to say, it is said Brother Phineas Young, the brother-in-law of Oliver Cowdery and Brother of Brigham Young, got it from him, Cowdery, and gave it to President Young, who had it with him when he arrived in the Salt Lake Valley and that it was with that stick that he pointed out where the temple should be built. I'm sorry if I read that oh, ahead of the plan. That's fine. But there's a story there from Anton H. Anton H. Lund's journal entry for July 5th, 1901. That says that Brigham Young ended up with the rod that belonged to Oliver Cowdery and that he used with the Lord's sanction in order to attempt to translate the Book of Mormon.
0: Yeah. And there was a second entry that verified that statement. D. Michael Quinn did this work. And in D. Michael Quinn's, uh, it was in the uh, Origins of Power And in that book, D. Michael Quinn notes that it's from an entry of 28 July 1847, but I don't think he notes where it came from. It's believed, I think it's Heber C. Kimball's journal, but that Brigham Young selects the site of the Salt Lake Temple by using Oliver Cowdery's Divining Rod. So there are two different journal entries that mention Brigham Young picked the site of the Salt Lake Temple using, and by this time it's a cane because we'll see in the very top, I think. Uh, When Oliver Cowdery took up his duties as a scribe for Joseph Smith in 1829, he had a rod in his possession, which Joseph Smith sanctioned. So it's not there. But my understanding is that Brigham Young turned the divining rod into a cane and then used it along with other canes the rest of his life. Um, And that he used this divining rod from Oliver Cowdery, as you pointed out, and as that second entry says, to pick the spot of the Salt Lake Temple. So here's another moment where this folk magic enters into Mormonism and is part of our narrative of the miracles and the moments where incredible things are done. Another one is the Mormon seer stone sat on the altar when the Manti temple was blessed. And so you have these moments where in spite of what Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith say later on, early Mormonism is intertwined in knots with folk magic.
2: Right, and this is beyond what even Richard Bushman hypothesized, who acknowledged the use of the the folk magic and said that, I believe it's Richard Bushman, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, but that he framed it as a sort of a, a school in which Joseph Smith could learn things that he needed to know in order to become a prophet, and that after he became a prophet of the church in 1830, he put these other things behind him. Is that
0: what you understood, Bill? Would that not be the same thing you've said in the past, which is when the church has to confront the history or science, it often retreats to a place that is indiscernible from a fraud. In other words, what looks like a fraudulent activity of Joseph Smith is a false treasure digger. He's scamming people. And then Moroni and the gold plates just become another treasure digging story. Hmm. that. People like Mark Ashurst McGee and Richard Bushman and others changed the story to suggest that this early folk magic was a way to train Joseph Smith to trust in items as catalyst, and to uh, and then little by little he could be weaned off these items once he developed a trust in his own ability.
2: Right. There's an attempt, once you recognize and have to accept the historical record about his uh, engagement in treasure digging and other kinds of folk magic, there's a desire on the part of certain um, historians to want to demarcate that off from his prophetic career and not to allow it to bleed over. But here we have instances of Oliver Cowdery's rod being used by Brigham Young after Joseph Smith's death and discussions by Heber C. Kimball about using these coffin canes in order to
0: heal people. Yep. And then the seer stone in Manti, this other divining rod that prior to Joseph Smith's death, they're getting yeses and nos. Um, It seems like this stuff, if we lived in that time, I bet we would see a hundred other instances of prominent church members using items that are believed to have some sort of magical ability. And by the way,
2: Uh, Let me just go ahead and insert this comment that just because consecrating olive oil to give it special properties, healing properties, and then using it to anoint a person's head is every bit as folk magical as using a rod or a seer stone. It is simply that we are so accustomed to that practice that a lot of times we fail to see in it the same kind of folk magic at play. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, when, when we're raised in it, to see it as just a part of our belief system, it isn't as weird as when we learn that something was done in a past moment that we didn't have a clue about.
2: Right. And that can be extended as broad as all Christianity, which has belief about power existing in a name, that being the name of Jesus Christ. And by that power, demons can be cast out. Also, the idea that through blood, we can be washed clean through the blood of Christ. These are all very, um, uh, I don't mean to be offensive, but we're very used to these. We're raised with these ideas. And so sometimes we take them for granted and don't see in them this kind of magical thinking at play there as well.
0: Yeah. And so that was the last one. So I hope folks, you enjoyed uh, seeing a bunch of obscure Mormon artifacts that uh, have played a part in Mormon history that I think most of us didn't know all of those, uh, and maybe didn't know most of them, if maybe all of them altogether. Uh, but there were quite a few in there that were new to me. There were things that that came up in this research that uh, I hadn't been aware of until preparing this episode.
2: Yeah, I'm still waiting for the episode when we can talk about the artifact of the gold plates.
0: Yeah, those are those are taken back by the angel. We don't have them. Uh, Unless
2: he re-delivered them down south of the border. Maybe, maybe. So you so know folks, the story, uh, right? There's the person down there who claims to have
0: the plate. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's got the sword of Laban. He's got uh, the sealed portion of the plates, maybe. He's got oh, the... Yeah. Oh, he, he's Yeah, Leahona, he's doing all the stuff. He's got all the things. Yeah. And another group of people are following along and believing it. It's pretty exciting.
2: Yeah. See, I that captures he, the excitement of Mormonism that got people interested in it in the first place. As opposed to the current version of Mormonism, which has trouble keeping people staying engaged with it.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. So folks, the phone lines are Thank open you. if you want to call. Um it is six six is Six 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 seven. Sorry, sometimes I get indigestion, and the only way I can finish my sentence is to turn my head sideways. It's this weird thing. But anyway, so six six two you just turn your head sideways. I, if I do, then it like I can I can that get through you the burp, sentence be you yeah off. I don't want to do it in the middle of a show and not mute my mic and stop mid sentence. So I turn my head sideways, finish it. And then while you say the next sentence, I,
2: uh, I mute my mic and you're giving away all the secrets. Now I have noticed the there have been two, at least two places, if not three tonight where you've been muted.
0: Yeah. I, I generally mute myself anyway when I'm not talking, but uh, there are times where my uh, acid reflux or indigestion gets the best of me.
2: Yeah. It seems to be on uh, at a high pitch this evening. It is.
0: Um, I had spaghetti just before uh, pasta and pasta sauce will do it. Well,
2: I hope it was good.
0: It was mediocre. I made it. It's my fault. Dinner was my responsibility tonight. So
2: Reminds me of a Marx Brothers movie where Groucho's, are can- Groucho's out canoeing with some lovely lady. And she says to him, my, you're full of whimsy. And he says, I'm always that way after radishes.
0: <laughs> hey, I do have a question for Maven if she wants to come on for just a second. If we can
2: wake Maven up. Maven, are you there? Let's see if, if we say will. her name three times, maybe
0: she'll appear. Maven, 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 there she is. Hey, hey, Maven. Hi. <laughs> yeah. We had a, sh- I think it was our show last week. Was it last week where James Raphael was in the chat?
3: Yeah. He emailed like an hour before the show. So I haven't read the email, but he, it's titled Sources for Lies. So I, Sweet. I'm i looking forward to uh, to checking it out. But, I hadn't
0: uh, seen his response and so I thought for some reason he had failed again to get back to us. I was but thinking sounds... that
3: too but yeah, like an hour before the show I think I saw actually something right. come in. So Maybe, so maybe you're going to have to clue the
0: audience in to who
2: the heck this is about. Yeah. You know, I like James <laughs> Raphael just for the fact that I'm not the one being called a liar all the time anymore.
3: <laughs> yeah, so James is interesting. He was in the comments on a show Well, because so I guess it started actually with you, uh, Bill, and your episode with Jacob Hansen, uh, I think that's what you... You basically put out the challenge that if uh, if you have been found to be lying like the church has lied, uh, to be an invitation to be called out, um, which, which is great. And so uh, James feels like he has some really good, really solid evidence and proof of, of Bill being very uh, disingenuous and just lying. And so he... Um, called into Mormonism Live. It wasn't on Mormonism Live that this uh, challenge was issued by Bill, but. but, right, but this, he, he this called is the in the show like a month ago it.
2: and he gave an yeah, example. So
3: he, it was terrible. Yeah. He, what was it? it? it was, the example was that one, one time Bill has been shown to have said uh, that he, you know, when he took a sabbatical from podcasting, that he was tired of talking about Mormonism, uh, whereas another time he just said he was tired of podcasting. So. Got gotcha you there. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what it was.
2: You Maybe. are a liar so from in, the beginning, in Bill. The phone Real. Call.
3: Yeah, James, James Raphael has four. your
2: number. Elder Holland. Elder Holland? People. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it was so yeah. unfair. <laughs> Pot oh meat my kettle. Gosh.
3: <laughs> right he, well, and, Bill and, is and just following really, the
2: profit.:
3: you, you said on the show like give me, give me your best one like I, which was, I think generous of you to even uh, allow that. It was really off topic. it was really I can't off wait to see his
0: second best one.
3: I know. Well, he then he came in the chat because you ended the call after that first one, um, after giving him a good reaming. Um, but then he was in the chat and he was just like, "I never said that was my best one. I've got four more." And so, and there was this whole. Long, and I have screenshots too. There's this. I'm on a live record. show, so I've
2: got one chance. So let me give you my worst yeah, example.
3: I know. So in the chat, he was like, "I've got more. I only had a week." And so I, I kept saying, you know, email it. And he's like, where to? He's a dedicated listener. You know how much
0: time it takes to go through hours and hours and hours scouring the podcast episodes to find lies like the one he found.
2: Oh, he's Jacob Hansen's cat's paw. Yeah. You know something's going on there.
3: It just was pretty late. He finally did uh, email, but he basically just gave that same one. He didn't provide any other further sources like he promised he would. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, we just had a, a complete repeat in the chat last week of the conversation we had a month or so previously, where he was like, I've got more, and I'm like, please show me. And he is just like, okay, I will. And um, I don't know. I think um, uh, I just think it's all, all talk and
0: I, have, 20, but I've I don't know. There's the, an
3: email sitting. I have not looked at it. Oh, have you, I, Bill, I'm looking at it, it. it right it now.
0: Um, dude, I'm on vacation this weekend. Can you give me a few days? All will be, be realized. And then he that was a couple of days ago. And then uh, three hours ago. Uh, hey, yo, didn't want you all to think I'd forgotten about you. Like I said, I've been on vacation this weekend and have been traveling a few hundred miles the last few days and have a date tonight. I was hoping to get my response ready and refined to send it to you before the show tonight, but decided to prioritize prepping for tonight. I hope you can give me some common courtesy to allow me some slack in responding to you, given that I don't do this as my full time job where I can put my mental focus into oh this God. whenever you want it. I'll try wholeheartedly to get back, get you back the response I spoke of giving to you, if not after I get back tonight, then for sure tomorrow perhaps you'd be willing to address on your show if you won't let me do it myself.
2: Oh my Signed Lord. James he Rockwell. is exhausting. Yeah. Good luck on the date to tonight. Say,
3: I yeah, know it might we take a lot of prep.
2: I recommend like a, a three hour shower.
0: <laughs> do you think he nitpicks his dates? Like he does me.
2: I have no idea, but you know, they better come no. prepared to pay for their half of the meal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well there's that no james So, stay tuned
3: everyone stay tuned yeah on bated breath but it it was really literally a repeat just in the conversation from a month previous he's like i I, it was yeah i don't i don't know what else to say other than that that was kind of amusing he was just like i'll you know okay i will i'll send it and i'm like all right well you said that last time and he's like no i really mean it this time so all right (laughs) yeah well anyway we are
2: Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, I just ledge. kind of
3: feel like we're being baited and edged. I don't know. Maybe oh, that's how it is. I know you the are, but what
0: am I? I <laughs> it's Infinity.
2: Gonna <laughs> it's going to be Jerry.
0: It's going to be huge. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Maven. Yep. So do we have any callers? We've got a couple. So one yeah. of them is Captain Moroni. Captain so. Moroni, you know, he donated, I think a,
2: it was like $1,000 at the top of the show.
0: Yeah, I th- uh yeah, I saw a donation but I don't know what what it was. It was I maybe, think maybe it was $100. I it back up on the screen while 9999 yeah. one of those? Yep. So, thank uh, you Captain so much. Moroni, Captain Maroni, are you there? Ooh, let's try something here. Mm, see what's going on on my Captain end. Moroni. I think I met him at Sunstone. I Captain tell Moroni, him by his title you of should be on my line. Are you there? Hmm. Let's try
2: this. How about now? I'm trying to pay attention.
0: I'm going to put him on speaker and see if this works. Are you there, Captain Moroni? Hmm. It sounds like a voice whispering from the dust. All right. I'm going to put him back. Oh, let's try this. Something dropped, and now something else came back on. Let's try again. Captain Moroni, are you there? There you are. Hey, how are you doing, my friend?
1: Oh, you must have... Well, you must have repented during that 12 look
0: at look at that something you I you got your you were in twice in the first one that dropped and then you came back in so um first off thanks for the donation second to be back thanks for the time to to spend with you a few days ago and RFm said he had a chance to hang out with you for a few minutes how was Sunstone
1: oh it was exquisite yeah everything I could dream and 20 times more. And uh, i got to tell you, RFM's glory is probably a hundred times greater in person. I had to avert my eyes.
0: Oh, look at that.
2: Well, thank you so much. By the way, how much would it cost for you to put a hit out on James Raphael, Captain? (laughs) Asking for a friend. Yeah, (laughs) hypothetically, joking.
1: I I, I can do it remotely, and I don't need the money, but I'll take it anyway.
2: (laughs) I think he needs a a good whack with the coffin
1: cane. <laughs> yeah I, honestly uh i love the show tonight Loved everything y'all were getting into i was actually getting curious about those talking games i've not heard brigham young talked about with, in such um, like just we usually don't kind of have his name with the magic stuff as much and um i was pretty busy. hello Hey doing still,
0: oops sorry about that uh, I- it was that indigestion. I had to mute it for a second. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Captain Moroni, back up about seven
2: seconds and, and continue that All story. I can say, Captain Moroni, is I am so glad I'm in a different state from Bill Real, much less present in his studio yeah, as he's go ahead. I didn't, broadcasting. No, he didn't
0: hear that. I tried to do it quietly. So go ahead, Captain. You'd be,
1: you'd be blessed to be in the presence of Bill Real's bird. Those are not, those are, yeah, he's, top class so um
2: no, my eyes uh, are watering from here
1: i'm basically saying that we we don't talk about um i guess i was surprised to hear brigham young's name coming up with some divining rods and, and stuff like that and i'm um, surprised to hear about this play they used to run where they would do these um i guess early members of the church leaders in the church would do this play and um i can't help but think um I think it's a quote by maybe Shakespeare. You probably know RFM, but but um, the world is stage and everyone plays their part. And um,
2: as you I like it, the
1: theme of Yeah, the um, <laughs> I feel like it's uh, it's interesting to see people with these kind of Masonic uh, backgrounds and and themes uh, where they basically just see this as a play, and you kind of get this better idea of how. These people can be running with something and kind of, kind of treating it like it's the Dead Poet Society, you know, sneaking you out naked rolls and some bloodos. But then we have so many layers of generations where the uh, whitewashing has gone on that you have the, the missionaries, the members, all protecting a narrative that's far from the actual truth of the inception of the church. But there's so much distance in between that all the naive. Ignorant pasties are just that. They they almost have no they have no stains on their hands. It's just it's, obviously we see this here. It's kind of fascinating to see, and um, I'd love to hear more about the um, the mystical. I, I just like hearing this. This all seems like new information at least to me.
0: Yeah, the folk magic of early leaders. Totally, isn't it not it amazing to you,
2: Captain Moroni? as it is to me that such a self-styled Yankee guesser as Brigham Young, so hard-headed, such a realist, such an organizer of men and things, should nevertheless have selected the location for the Salt Lake Temple by Oliver Cowdery's rod, moving.
1: Yeah, yeah, he could
0: pull his um, his own What's yeah. that? Say that again?
1: Yeah. Oh, no, I'm just I'm just kind of thinking about what 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 it is that makes him know one spot from another. You know, like what, what makes his perceptions much better? I mean, other than him just being the topic.
0: Well, it seems, you know, Brigham is just picking a spot for whatever reason. And but by having a artifact or a relic with you, it it kind of creates this space where everybody is kind of buying into the magicalness of that experience, regardless of whether there's any revelation or not happening, just having a relic in your hand is going to have an impression upon people's minds.
2: Yeah. And my understanding is it was yeah. recorded on yeah. more than one occasion by a young woman to, that they asked Brigham Young, uh, the following question. Is that Oliver Cowdery's rod in your pocket, Brigham, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> just excited to see me? <laughs> yes, I remember that quote. Very
2: yeah.
0: Powerful. Yeah. It's in documented the in the history. <laughs> Look it up. Yeah. Nowadays. Joseph Smith Papers Project, <laughs> Volume 11. Yep. All right. Thank you hey, so much, Captain. The
1: laughter, a little bit, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Great work, though.
0: Thanks for the donation, yeah. my friend. Thank, Thank you, me.
2: sir. Absolutely.
1: All right.
2: Take it easy. Take it easy. Bye
0: bye. All right. And then we've got one more call and then we'll end it because there's nobody else in the bank. This is, uh, it says, cat. Kilgo. Let's see if that's correct. Is it Cat or Kate Kilgo? Kate.
4: Kate. Yeah. Um, hi. How are you?
0: Welcome to Mormonism Live.
4: Uh, hi. Um, Long time listener. Uh, glad to be on. Awesome. I, glad to have you. There was, a, there was a part when you were talking about some of the Nauvoo era artifacts, and I was at... Um, so I, I have an interesting connection to Nabu, at least in recent history. Um, not like I'm not like a pioneer ancestry or anything, but like um, my older brother was in the Nauvoo pageant for several years as Brigham Young. So I spent many summers um, going to the pageant and spending time there. And it was like one of my mom's favorite places. And I left the church a few years ago. My mom was so tough. So I went back up there for the first time recently um since leaving the church um to scatter some of her ashes there um for mm. on behalf of my siblings because mm. i know that they're still in the church and it was something i did for them Totally. but um so it was a really interesting experience seeing the pageant knowing all the history after reading no man knows my history of the ces letter and leaving and um the, my main question with all that backstory is like, RFM, I think he said that um, they don't teach, they've, they've transitioned from the history that they're teaching around um, the Carthage shooting um, with John Taylor. And they're saying, oh, well, maybe they, they, they like, he leaned into the windowsill and how that they're kind of telling that story. But I was just there and there's, like, there's still missionaries that have the same same story. Um, and I'm just interested in your guys' thoughts, if you've ever been to Navi or Carthage, if you've seen the podcast, um, what your thoughts are on that. But, like, they're still very much telling all of the same whitewash history, like nothing that even the gospel topics essays address. It's like, I feel like I was transported back in time, you know, because it's like I know, now that I know everything, like, in the CS letter, I can't, like, unsee it and I hmm. see all the manipulation now and I I'm just curious of what you guys' thoughts are on that because I I mean I practically have the pageant memorized I've seen it so many times I've yeah. been to Nauvoo a dozen times or more and like seeing it again after leaving the church is astounding
0: you're, you're saying that they still talk about John Taylor's watch in that same way
4: in Carthage yeah if you go and tour. So, um, I, I've heard, I heard missionaries, like, you know, telling the story and talking about, um, John Taylor's watch, like for their own person. Like, I mean, maybe it's just individual older missionaries that are still like, you know, that's the story they grew up with and they don't know that like, you know, evidence has come out to suggest that that's otherwise. Um, but, As far as I know, I'm still hearing people like talk about that story in at least a somewhat official capacity because they have name tags on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, that's one of the interesting things about miracle stories. And miracle stories are like zombies. They're hard to kill. Mm -hmm. Because there's something about them that is attractive generally in the first instance, which is why they get perpetuated and why everybody hears about them. And then once history goes the other way, and even if the church comes out and formally states in their history museum or other venues that, no, this isn't what happened, that's going to hit 5%, 10% tops of the membership. And the rest of them are going to continue to regurgitate the miracle story that they heard. And that is meaningful to them because it's another evidence that John Taylor didn't actually kill Joseph
0: Smith. I I know at one time, uh, Kate got it. Okay, sorry. You're good. I'm Um,
2: excited.
0: In the nov in Carthage jail, there was a spot on the floor that was reported to be like the blood, their blood, right? And for decades, the senior missionaries every once in a while would have to touch up that spot, add some red paint or whatever, that make that spot darken up because by that time the blood had become so faint or light or whatnot. All the times with that uh, you know the floor is cleaned, and all that over the years, and uh, so they had church missionaries that would kind of touch up the spot to darken it up again. But far as I know, that had been done away that decade or two ago. they had stopped doing that. And what you're and, and I would imagine too, whatever missionaries are teaching at Nauvoo, they are uh highly educated on what they should say or not say. And hence, if that story continues to be told, you would assume that someone in some sort of official capacity is instructing them to use that as part of their story.
4: Yeah, and, and maybe, it, it, I, I don't know, it could be either way, but essentially like that's a small, like one small fraction of a miracle story within the greater miracle story, which is the Navu pageant itself, like talking about you know, the restoration, they have this, like, composite character, Robert and Becky Laird, that aren't, like, real characters, but they use them to, like, show, like, how people can be converted to the gospel, and um, throughout the whole show, you know, they're telling the restoration story, and, like, I'm, I'm willing to go back again next year and watch it, because, and bring a notebook and record it, because, like, I remember specific things, where it's like that is just a blatant outright lie. And from what I know, because my brother was involved in the pageant like from very early on when that used to be like the city of Joseph, when they did the Nabu pageant, um, it was told by the original pageant director that the first president to see themselves, um, including Gordon B. Hinckley at the time, well, maybe it was Monson. This is not the Nabu temple was rebuilt in 2002. I'm trying to remember when the Nauvoo pageant started, but, um,
2: and Kate, anyways, for my, for my benefit
4: approved the entire script of the Nauvoo pageant word oh, for word had to I'm be sure. approved by the first presidency. I'm sure. And it's out it, in, and it still includes things that are, that are now like the church admits our fault within the gospel <laughs> topics essays, but they haven't updated the pageant script at all, you know, and I was shocked about that.
0: I'll just say for you or anyone else going, I think recording it saying out loud, cause we know the SMC, SCMC watches a show. Uh, let's just say oh, out loud, the, the next it, person who it, goes it, to sorry. the Nambu pageant, please record it. Because if they're still teaching things that we now all know, including church historians and including the church officially doesn't believe anymore, then that sort of is a pretty significant deception to continue to instruct in these, uh, certain spaces to continue those stories. And also I had thought all these pageants were being done away, but as you're pointing out, I went and looked the uh Nauvoo. Let me see here. Let me read the statement they've got here from, uh, from the church. Um, uh, where is it at? It said something about all the pageants had been done away, but, but saints are still surprised to find out that these two pageants, I think it's Nauvoo in a British pageant. British. Maybe? Yeah. That those they're pageants still go on, on. yeah,
4: yes, and they're still very heavily invested in it. There's there's a whole culture around the Navi pageant, and like the core cast members that come back, you know, repeatedly, um, you know, and family cast. Like it's it's a really big. I mean, like families go up there for two weeks to be a part of this little family cast thing, and the core cast hmm. is up there for two months um, rehearsing. They're paid. You know, it's their full-time job for the summer. The forecast members, the families—they volunteer. There's a huge culture around it, still in the same way that like the pie and the Kamor pageants, which I never saw, but those were all put on by local areas and like kind of like the 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 main leadership of the church is like, yeah, cool, you can do those. And same with city of Joseph, but um, the first presidency actually got very involved in the. Uh, Nabu pageant specifically, around the time that they were doing away with Mantai and Mora, um, and decided to like maybe close down those other two and really put the emphasis in Nabu because like, I mean, when I was like struggling in my my testimony and like I just knew I didn't fit in the church like deep down and I was struggling like I still I would go to Nabu to rebrainwash myself you know like and reinforce the spirit again. yeah, there's like, you know, it's a it's a powerful testimony builder when you go to the pageant with the music and the people and the camaraderie and the family and everyone's just you know how Mormons you know we can they can be so nice, you know, um, mm-hmm. and there's so much camaraderie around that. So I see why, like having been a part of it for so long, why the church still invests so much because it it can keep people in it. It definitely kept me in longer than <laughs> I was.
2: Right. no. Yeah. Kate, I know what you're talking about. Bill used to be very, very nice before he got excommunicated. Yeah. Now I'm just a liar. Also, Kate, is it true that they have the same <laughs> actor playing both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young? The transfiguration. Because <laughs> that's what I'd be doing if I was the director. That would be my directorial choice. <laughs> uh,
4: no, you know, that that would have been cool. Um, but no, as my brother was the one playing Brigham Young, he was... um there's no way he would have been able to pull
2: off Joseph. He was what do they do 18, at the transfiguration scene? August 8th, 1844. What do they do at the transfiguration scene to make Brigham Young look or sound like Joseph Smith?
4: They don't. Uh, they just put really bright spotlights on him.
2: This is not faith-promoting. I can do a more faith-promoting pageant. <laughs>
4: uh, if, if you'd see my brother brother do it and you're still a believing member it would have been basically promoting I promise
2: but uh, oh. you love your brother don't you
4: kind of manipulative mm-hmm. that's nice um yeah he he was very talented uh, or is a very talented actor and but like now I would just see this really great acting and um you know manipulation through emotion <laughs> music
2: yeah also if not, I were directing it I'd have a scene where like, with Bram Young playing, playing with Oliver Cowdery's Rod just saying <laughs>
4: Oh God. <laughs> there um there were definitely some lines within the um the pageant that like I was like, Oh Kate, okay, get your mind out of the gutters because <laughs> um, but it would be funny maybe to record that and do a YouTube episode where you like clip and like insert funny thoughts. I don't know, maybe self on the shelf could do something like that. I'll- I'll well, put it and send it to them in you want to do something with it. Because there are some pretty funny lines that I wouldn't, that would have gone way over my head when I was in the church. That seeing it again, I'm like, that is so dirty.
0: Well, thank you, Kate. I, can't
4: and, forget, I, should, say, I should have written notes, but. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you I for calling not. in. And Yes, that's uh, why I it has you, a PG
2: 13 rating.
0: That's right. I hope that uh, you or somebody else does record that tour of the Carthage jail if they're still talking about that watch, because that one, everybody at the top echelons of the church knows that story isn't true anymore. And folks, if you ever want to record one of the pageants or one of those things and uh, those old teachings are still existing in the, in the modern tours of that stuff or the pageants, that would make for some interesting uh, fodder for part of a conversation, I think.
2: Yeah, I think so. You know, I was uh, yeah. doing the Temple Square tour this past uh, Thursday. Sister missionaries everywhere. There's not an elder in sight. You know, I don't think they'll allow elders on the grounds. And I think it's because sister missionaries are deemed to be less threatening, but they're yeah. like everywhere. And so I was talking to one of them. I've always been. I'm sorry, Kate. Yes.
4: Sorry, I said yeah, I've always been told that like specifically from Oh, it's definitely true. I can I can oh, guarantee yeah.
2: you eyewitness testimony yeah. right here. And I was asking one of them because you can see the foundation of the, the Salt Lake Temple now. You can't really see much of the temple because of the scaffolding, but you can see the foundation. I said, What are you doing with the foundation when Brigham Young said we're changing it from sandstone to granite so it will last through the millennium? So what are we doing? Monkeying with the foundation oh, already again need
4: to be replaced.
2: I know. And they said, well, this one is going to last for the millennium. And I laughed and I said, well, that's what Brigham Young said. Yeah. The the sister missionaries love me. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, Kate. Thanks uh, for the call.
4: Yeah. Thanks for, for letting me chat. Um, yeah. It was problem. great to chat with you guys. I appreciate your show and everything I'll
0: do. Glad to have you as, a, and as, Maven as, you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, have a great night and uh, yeah, play your, t- you push too. the record button in your recorder the next time you're there.
4: Thank have you to up there from St. Louis uh, next
2: summer. All right. Take it easy. Right. bye Good night. Good night. All right. So that's it for the calls. Is that right,
0: Bill? That's it. That's it for the night.
2: Well, um, next week, next week we have tentatively planned, and hopefully this is going to gel, because we want to have Dan Vogel on. And I know everybody's going, oh, not Dan Vogel again. We have had too much of Dan Vogel. Dan- <laughs>
0: I think <laughs> well, Dan's always great.
2: Well, um, as Thoreau said, we can never have too much Dan Vogel. But he's going to be talking about something very interesting next week because he's going to talk about... Everybody's heard he wrote this new book. A new book, right? About um, Joseph Smith in the from 1831 to 1839. Charisma Under Pressure, I believe, is the mm-hmm. title. And Brian Hales went on to... I think it was Amazon where it was being sold and did a book review in which he gave Dan Vogel's book two stars. Yeah. And apparently... Brian Hale's problem with Dan Vogel's book was that it did not address something that doesn't even occur between 1831 and 1839. In other words, it's outside the purview of the book, but Brian Hale's had a problem with it and gave it two stars, two stars. So we want to have Dan Vogel on the show to talk about his feelings about why it is that Dan Vogel gave his book two stars. And the whole thing that Brian Hale's is talking about is about the Book of Mormon, which of course happens before 1831, which is when the book starts. So Brian Hales has this new idea that he feels that he can prove the book of Mormon is true. Actually, he's taking the, the best defense is a good offense advice and saying, where did all the words come from? No, yeah. really, that's actually what he says. Where did all the words come from? Mm. How did Joseph so next- Smith come up with all these words? It's like Salieri talking about Mozart, too many notes. Well, that's what Brian Hales thinks, is that there's too many words. And where could Joseph Smith have come up with them? And Dan Vogel is going to suggest answers to those questions, which may be more secular than divine.
0: Awesome. How many stars would you give Brian Hales?